I think you know the drill. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you would. And uh, in a few moments, we'll read verses 6 through 15. We're, we're almost finished. One more Sunday, I think, in 2 Thessalonians, and then we will begin a new journey through another part of, uh, of God's Word. I'm going to read this, and if we go back to last week, you'll remember that Paul is laying the groundwork for one of the, the outflows of the Spirit-filled life, which is work, God-honoring work. And uh, that's why we're going to read the whole thing uh, in just a few moments. But before we do, I want to show you an attitude that is the polar opposite of what Paul, and, and he's speaking for God in this passage of Scripture, what he has to say. This comes from an essay written by uh, a guy by the name of Bob Black. I had never heard this name before. I'm sure you haven't either. Bob Black is an anarchist, and he wrote an essay called The Abolition of Work. It's quite interesting. I was reading it, and I thought, well, this is his attitude. I wonder how many people would share uh, in the words that he said. I won't read the whole thing, but just the opening couple of words that he says. No one should ever work. Now, let me stop right there. If you're a little bit drowsy and when the preacher pauses and you say amen, please don't do that. Okay? Let me start again. No one should ever work. Work, he says, is the source of nearly all the misery in the world. Almost any evil you'd care to name comes from working or for living in a world designed for work. Do you hear what he's saying? In order to stop suffering, we have to stop work. Liberals say we should end employment discrimination. I say we should end employment. Conservatives support right-to-work laws. I support the right to be lazy. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness or laziness, and not in accord with the tradition, with the word that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. This is Paul talking. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right 
but to give you ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, and this specifically about work, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Father, these are sobering words not just the words of the Scripture, they're sobering words that reveal, if not a, a, a totally common view of work, one that may in some ways ring true with some people in this room. Lord, certainly work has been, it's, it, it's been packaged with a lot of stuff that goes with it. Work sometimes is not fun. Father, we know that you have a plan and a purpose for work. Help us to remember that, to discover that. And then today, particularly to look at some of the things that you talk about in terms of a lazy brother or sister and help us to know these things, not only for ourselves, but also for the benefit of others and also for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you and We praise you, and as always, I need your help as I work through this. Give us understanding and wisdom, and help us to live it out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's go back and do a summary. Some of you weren't here this last week, so let me do a quick overview, a summary of this last week. We looked at a biblical theology of of work. A lot of this, and I'm going to go back and just review it very, very quickly. This will correct, hopefully, the faulty view that we expressed a few minutes ago from that dear person, Bob Black. By the way, I I just wondered all week long, I I wonder how he survives if he doesn't work. Last week, I asked you the question, when you think about God, what do you think about? What are some adjectives that you would use to describe God? I threw some out for you, holy, just, sovereign, how about merciful, loving, kind, but I would guess that not many people would use the adjective, speaking of God, as hard-working. And I shared with you last week that this is the foundation because God is truly the hardest working being that you have ever heard about, that ever was. We read these verses uh, last week. We'll read them again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all of His work that He had done. And I asked the question, I would ask it today, do you want to be like God? 
I hear a lot of people say, I, I want to be more like God than Yes, be tender and kind and loving and merciful and all of the rest of those characteristics of God, but don't forget, be a hard worker. John 5, 17, we could also look down and we walked down the examples. Paul just said that he was a, an example to imitate, but Jesus said it too. He answered them and said, my father is working until now and I am working. So in eternity past, God worked. He's working now. In eternity future, He will work. Work is good because everything that God does is good. Now, something else. God created you and me to work. Nobody gets out of it. He created man to work. It's a good gift that preceded the fall. I think this is important for us to remember. Sometimes there is the attitude, even among Christians, that, that, that work is somehow, it was given to us after the fall of man into sin, and so therefore work is sinful. Like this guy, Bob Black, said a few minutes ago, no, that's not the case. God gave work to man before the fall of man into sin. So God created man in his own image, the Scripture says. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, watch this, to do what? To work. To work. To work it. And to keep it. It is a good thing. And I don't know that you've ever noticed this. God commands us to work in the Ten Commandments. I was thinking about this last week as I was studying, and we, we did a thing last week, and, and we looked at the, the, the precepts, the laws of God, and how that they figure into our lives. We don't want to just always live with the thou shalt nots, because th that precept or the thou shalt, th th it issues into a principle, and it always points to the person of God. But God and, and, and so often, isn't it amazing how we overlook little things like this? This is not an aside. The command is, remember the Sabbath day. That's a positive command, to keep it holy. But a corollary to that is, six days you shall labor and do all your work. It's not a statement of fact about you will work, but it is a command that is equal to the command to remember the Sabbath day and, by the way, all of the other commands to keep. God commands us to work in the Ten Commandments. And so we, we, we get at that. I, I gave this illustration last week. I hope it's helpful. 
Uh, don't get hung up. Sometimes people, Christians, especially used to, I think, they get hang, hung up on the Ten Commandments. It's so negative. Don't tell us the Ten Commandments. But just remember that in every precept, like, for, for example, don't murder. Why is that in there? Because there's a principle that we need to move to the positive, give life. But there's an ultimate reason behind that. Why? Why not murder so that we can give life? Because God is the ultimate life giver. Don't steal. Why? Because God is a giver. And we need to be givers as well. So we discovered again last week, by the way, this is all by way of review. I hope it's not too much. We'll get into those three points in just a minute. We're going to hit those. So why is there pain in work? Because of the fall. Man fell into sin. He disobeyed God. God said, don't do it, you'll die. And there were just some, some things that happened as a result of his spiritual death that he died. He, he, he said, work. God said, work. The, the good work that I've created for you to do is going to be impacted. And so it's going to be attended by thorns and thistles, and, and, and you're not, it's, it's not going to be easy. That's why it's hard. That's why work is hard. It's meant to be. God's going to redeem it. And do you know that even now, if you do what God tells you to do, He redeems your work. And there can be great joy in your work even now. So let's look at the points. Um, again, last week was more positive. We laid the foundation today. Here's what we want to do. We want to look specifically at that person in the church. I was trying to think, uh, I always do. When I prepare a sermon, I always have people in mind. You know who I start with, don't you? Moi. Yeah, okay, I, I start with me. And then I fan out. And, and I really couldn't think of anyone in our church that is doing what Paul is telling us not to do. This was a very specific problem for the church at Thessalonica. But let, let me just say this by way of application. Even if it's not a visible problem in the church, my guess is that sometimes... In your family, you've got family members like this, and you're going to see that, that what Paul says about the problems that they cause are very, very true, not just in the church, but in your family. So take it to heart, and let's see what God says. Now, I hope this is not too strong, but here's the first point. A Christian, a Christian. Why do I say a Christian? Because later on, he calls him a brother. A Christian who refuses to work. Now, I'm going to say this several times. This is refusing to work when he is able to work. And by the way, this is masculine. He, it's, it's that way throughout. I think that uh, Paul would say it's, a, it, it, it's generic. It, it's he and she. But, but I think that there is a particular problem sometimes with men in this. So, a Christian, that's my personal opinion, who refuses to work is from, and you've got the verse right there, I've just picked out some of the comments from the, the, the thing that we read a few moments ago to show you wh what Paul is saying. A Christian who refuses to work is disobedient, a thief, 
a burden to others and a troublemaker. Now, the church at Thessalonica was a great church. Do you got, were, were some of you here when we started 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 1, we go back and we look at how Paul brags on them. They were a great church. They were doing the, the things that they needed to do. But I can tell you this, in every church that there is, church at Thessalonica, church at Heritage, every church that I've ever pastored, there are problem people. Someone called these EGR people. I'm not sure who originated that term. You know what EGR means, don't you? Yes, John, that's right. Extra grace required. Do you have an EGR person in your life? And again, another preacher said, if you don't, then maybe you are that EGR person to someone else. This goes beyond a, a person who carries baggage. This is not talking about this. This is talking about a person who is committing, again, the sin of refusing to work when he is able to do so. Idleness, not working when you can, laziness, all of that. It's a serious sin. So, Paul uses some strong language to correct it. That's what he's wanting to do, is to correct it. And he did it, remember, not just for the ones who are sinning, but he did it also for the good of the church. The ones being sinned against. And I think the implications I mentioned a minute ago, it has implications for families. Oh, my. Huge. I, 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 I'm treading on, on really delicate ground here. But I, I, I don't know that I... There could be in, in this generation more so than in previous generations... Again, this is a, a personal observation, more of a failure to launch in some situations. So let me just say it, from the youngest to the oldest, and, and we, we talked last week and we're going to talk this week again about some of the things that you can do. You don't just reach a certain age and start working. The, the youngest of you, when your parent tells you to pick up your toys and put them away, that's your job. Do it as unto the Lord. There's reward attached to that. So, let's just walk through what I said in this opening statement And, and I can go over here, start with the students, go all the way around, and I'm, I'm going to personalize it. If you, if you are disobedient to God's command, 
then you need to correct that. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 9. Remember, we said this a minute ago, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The command is to work. Let me go back to 1 Thessalonians. And Paul, he's mentioning it there too. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. If you refuse to work when able, you are disobedient to this command. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to attend to your own business, to work with your hands as we have commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And if you're not working, when you can, if you're refusing to work, you're disobeying God. Second thing, you're a thief. That's serious. If you're not working when you can, there are people today who want jobs and can't get them. But if you're not working and you can, you are a thief. You are violating the Eighth Commandment. You see, if, and I said this last week, it, it almost a, a casual one-off thing. This guy either is somehow getting, the guy that I quoted at the very beginning, he, he's getting his bread somehow. He, he's being supported somehow. He's selling his essays. So he's a part of the very thing that he's militating against, which is hypocrisy. But I want you to see that these people in this church, not this church, it's the church at Thessalonica, because they weren't working, they not only were lazy and disobedient to God's command, but they were stealing. And that's a violation of the commandment, you shall not steal. I asked the question last week, what do you call it? When someone takes your property that you have worked for and that you own because they feel like they're entitled to it, what's that called? Okay, you, you, you were here last week. And all of you said stealing, and I said socialism. And then I thought, and I thought, was that... You know, pre preachers uh, can get themselves in trouble uh, with one-offs, uh, just saying something kind of spontaneously, but I thought about that this week, and, and Lord help me try to, to, to articulate this so that you get a feel for an application that transcends just a family and a church, but it also uh, applies to, to culture. I'm, I'm going to try to do that real quickly and pull away from any particular economic or political kind of structure like socialism, capitalism, those kinds of things. Now, I want to pull back and just walk you through a couple of things. Was, this is interesting, was the first century church, I mean right out of the chute, was the first century church a picture of socialism? or distributism? There are some who say yes, because they had all things in common. And then they gave 
out of that storehouse. Now, a half-truth paraded as a whole truth is an untruth. So look at what the Bible clearly, clearly says about right out of the chute, the first century church. And they were selling whose possessions? Others? Their possessions. In other words, was there a right that tr transcended what their, their new church believed that goes all the way back to the Eighth Commandment? Listen, the Eighth Commandment has absolutely no meaning unless there is a right to the ownership of private property. How, how, how do you steal something if it's everybody's? So they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I, 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 later on, we find that it was the apostles and then the deacons who helped in that distribution. We're not talking about the quality of people who are distributing these items. We're talking about the principle of ownership here. And then we jump to chapter 5 where the story, this incredible story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, who were, uh, they weren't charismatics, but they were slain in the Spirit. They never got up. This was a horrible hypocrisy, lying to God. And so Peter just makes this statement that is so revealing. And he says, look, you've lied about this sale of the property and you brought part of it. You kept back part of it for yourself. The problem is not that you did that. The problem is that you lied about it and you tried to look like something that you're not. God forgive us. For doing things like that. But here's what Peter said, while it remained unsold, the piece of land, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Incredible story. I'll give you a couple of just scriptural pictures uh, of this. And uh, then talk about an ex experiment that didn't work out until they corrected it, all right, with this kind of thing. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Anybody? We're not going to turn there. The Good Samaritan, this guy fell uh, among thieves. He was robbed. He was beat up, left for dead. And some guys came by who were religious people, and I guess he thought for sure that he would get some help, and he didn't. And finally, a Samaritan comes by and helps him. Now, I want you to look at three attitudes. Which one of these does Jesus say, that's not a good attitude to have? And which one does he say, this is a good attitude? The first attitude was the thieves. What's yours is mine, and I'll take it. Is that a good attitude? Okay, we're talking about that. It's not a good attitude. The next attitude, and this is the other side, so I don't want to leave out the other side. Human nature being what it is, we've got a problem with any, any political system, any economic system. There are some that work better than others, according to the Scriptures. The second attitude of the guys who just walked by, their attitude was what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. 
I don't think Jesus likes that attitude very much either. And so the scriptures are just full of these poor Christians in the first century giving, giving till it hurt to help meet the needs of others. But here's the attitude that Jesus said, this guy's a neighbor. You want to be a neighbor? Be like this guy. What's mine is yours, and I will voluntarily give it to you. One more. You you can just write down this reference, um, stack these things in, and then as I went over it this morning, realized it's too late to tell Jonathan to change the slide, but, you know, hopefully it's not too much. One more story that goes with it. The story of the guy that hired the people to work in his vineyard. He was very, very generous. That was the whole point of the parable, even though he didn't give anything more to the early guys than he did to the guys who worked last. But here's what he said. And again, this is the verification that God says all through Scripture of the ownership of private property. He says, Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And Jesus did not rebuke him. In fact, he points out that he was generous. Socialism. I said that word You could launch off on all kinds of political talks and all the rest of that. No, no, we're not going there except to say that you don't have to go to other countries today to show the relative success or failure of that system of economics. All you have to do is look at a couple examples. Please watch the historical revisionists. Two examples in the founding of our country. Jamestown and Plymouth Colony. I won't get into all of it, but I have a copy of of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, the governor of the Plymouth Colony. He writes very, very specifically. You see, both of those colonies started, and for about five to seven years, they were a socialistic society. They put all things into what was called a common store, and then they distributed them. Now, If you're looking for godly leaders to distribute something like that, surely they would have fit the bill. It was a miserable failure. Starvation. People wouldn't work. People became angry because they were doing the work and other people were benefiting. In fact, I'll I'll just read to you what William Bradford said. It was a premium. Now, he's using words that were written back in 1600s, okay? Try to define those. It was a premium for idleness. What are we talking about today? Work. What's the opposite of work? Idleness. That particular system was a premium for idleness, just suited, I like this, for drones. Does anybody know what, do you know what a drone is? Well, a drone is uh, either a male bumblebee. Any of you ever have experience when you were a kid with drones? Have, Have you guys ever 
played with a drone? A bumblebee, I'm talking. A male bumblebee. Anybody? Anybody here has? Am I the only one? Ed, did you? They were so much fun because if you could find one that was truly a drone, and you know how you could tell? Listen, the real bumble, it was, it was always a male. <laughs> Proved my point a few minutes ago. But the, 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 all the other honeybees were running around. They were getting into the flowers. They had pollen all over them. This guy looked kind of small and shriveled up, and he was just kind of a slug walking around. And you knew he was a drone, and he didn't have a stinger. So you could let him walk around on you and all the rest of that? Well, that's, that's what a drone is. But a drone is something else. A drone is someone who is lazy and does not produce any effect. So, it said that this system suited the drones who promptly decided that it was unnecessary to work themselves since others would work for them. And Bradford says in this little section, we thought we were wiser than God. That, it is so revealing. You know what they did? They gave each family a parcel of land, said, go work it. And what a turnaround when people owned property, were not idle, did not steal, and got to work. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 15, there's your little lesson in whatever it is. Take it to heart because it grows out of these biblical principles. First Peter 4, 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. Boy, those things are serious. Don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a hmm, meddler. Now here, let me, before we get to the second point, uh, let me say this to you, church. Don't be afraid. When you see things going around you, on around you in our culture, don't be afraid of any ism. Amen. Please, do you hear me? Don't be afraid of any ism, whether it's socialism, Marxism, or any of those other kinds of isms, because no economic or political system is going to stop the church. I have that on pretty good authority. Jesus said, I will build my church. And I like what a preacher of mine said years and years ago about this, no political system, no political party has the Lion of Judah by the tail. Point two, appropriate consequences to be enforced on one who refuses to work are, first, hunger, second, the refusal to associate with him, third, appropriate shame. That is almost shocking in today's culture, even church culture. You know what this is talking about? This is talking about church discipline. And, and now, again, the operative word is not a person who can't work, physical limitations, or they can't get a job, and there are those all around us. We're talking about a person who can work and who refuses to, not willing to work. And so very simply, what Paul is doing, they haven't gotten to the, to the real thing yet. They are on the beginning steps of church discipline. Pull back. Why? Well, don't support them in their disobedience. 
Don't, don't put yourself with them because they're going to drain you and, and, and you're going to be seen as supporting them in their disobedience. So don't associate with their disobedience. Don't legitimize their laziness. Even if they sound spiritual. And that's, I think, what these guys were up to. So a real simple maxim. Uh, I, I don't know of any other place this is found in Scripture. It was found in the pilgrims' writings. If they don't work, they don't eat. You know, hunger is a good motive. And it doesn't have to be physical, just the, the belly, the appetite, the growling of the stomach. It could be something that someone wants really, really bad. You don't work, you don't get it. That's a very, very important principle. And we know that hard work is rewarded. Listen, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm going to do the sweep, all right? Boom, I'm landing with the students over here. Hard work is rewarded. And not in the same way. We know the contingencies of life, the ups and downs, but across the board, you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. I'll give you another one, Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. In that culture particularly, maybe in ours to a degree, but for sure in that culture and in Asian cultures, being a part of the group was where you found your identity. And to be separated from the group was incredible shame and still is. So, Paul is saying two things. Look, the beginning process of discipline is to withdraw. Don't support them in their disobedience to God. They're still brothers. Don't treat them as enemies. But you withdraw, and hopefully they'll be ashamed of what they're doing, and they'll get to work. Third thing, really, really quickly. As difficult as it might be, don't grow weary in well-doing. I... I know others can sap you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You keep working, okay? You may not have it all together in terms of relating to other people who are not doing all they need to do. And don't grow weary in well-doing in terms of bringing discipline on those who need it. Don't stop firmly encouraging and warning those who are lazy, those who are disobeying, reminding, warning, encouraging wayward believers, and I said it at the very beginning, family members. And this verse right here, look, I, I, I looked at this, I, I've known it for a long time, but studying this week, I wondered, what's the context of this verse? Let the thief steal no longer. I wonder if that was, that's what you used to be and you came into the church and you're no longer a thief. Or I wonder if Paul in, a, in, in Ephesians was talking about people who were doing that in the church. And so if you're in that category, just repent. Stop stealing. Start working. Doing honest work with his own hands. I'm adding out of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Two reasons why you work, you provide for your own, 
and you have something to share. Small things, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. I want to close with this. I saw this this last week. Some of you have seen it. Children and, and, and students and all that. Adults. Don't think grand and, and, and big and all the rest of that. Start with the small things and work your way up. I love, I've seen this before, I just thought I would share it. Not the whole thing, but if you want to look at it, it is a commencement speech from William R. McRaven, a four-star admiral. Graduated from the University of Texas, bless his heart. And went back in 2014 to do a speech. It is incredible. You, you need to Google and watch the whole thing. He was a Navy SEAL. And so he said, here's the formula for success. Are you ready for it, students? Are you? Drum roll. Here's what he said. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. Some of you parents are loving this. Be an example. Make your own bed. Okay, okay. It will give you a small measure of pride and will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will turn into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't get the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. Work hard as God has given it to you. Father, I thank you that now as we transition and we look with a laser focus at the gospel of Jesus Christ, we look at it through the symbol of the bread and the symbol of the cup, the wine. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us these beautiful, beautiful symbols that remind us of the gospel. Oh God, I, I cry out to you if there's anyone here today who does not know you. Oh, we use words like personally, intimately, but they just don't, they just don't know you. They know facts. But Lord, those facts have never gotten into their heart and created that relationship. I pray, I, I, again, I cry out to you in the name of Jesus that they would be awakened to their own sin against you and against others. But against you primarily, they would be awakened to your provision for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed. And that they would humbly receive that sacrifice, the person of Christ would repent of their sins and believe. And Lord, they can begin a brand new lifestyle even today. From this minute, 
So we thank you that in the taking of the Lord's Supper, it's a beautiful symbol of that reality, and we take it gladly. God, help us to see the reality of it. In Jesus' name, amen.